Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. You know, where would we rather be than to be with God's people singing things like that? Singing about God's faithfulness and His sovereignty, being reminded of how He watches over our lives and how He is leading us ultimately to dwell in His presence forever. Uh, this great truth we need to be reminded of always is that we were made for that. We were made to know God, to walk with God, and to dwell with Him forever, to be in His presence eternally. So this morning as we think about going into the new year, uh, we say Happy New Year, and for us it's, it's deeper, it's, it's a joyful new year as we think about this because we're one step closer to dwelling with the Lord forever, to being in His presence. Presence. And I pray that as this year is kicked off for you, that there is a level of intentionality, uh, seriousness, and sober-mindedness about the life that the Lord has given each of us. You know, we don't have to be resolution-oriented or uh, Monday or 1st or January 1st type of people. Uh, but we do recognize that God gives us a certain posts, guideposts throughout our lives. And uh, I think a new year is an opportunity for us to reflect you know, one of the things that always strikes me every time uh, if I go by a cemetery, it always causes me to reflect. And this is the thought that comes into my head. One day, that's where I'm going to be. Uh, one day, I'm going to be uh, buried in the earth. And there's going to be a, a stone over top of my body. And it just reminds me of the brevity of life and the fact that life is something to be lived with absolute seriousness and intentionality. And I think in many ways, although a little different, <laughs> a new year can be something like that and remind us who we are and what God has called us to do and to be. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 15, and today we are in verses 22 to 27. It is good to be back with all of you this morning. And I want to thank Trey for bringing God's word to us last week from Philippians 3, that power-packed letter of practicality for the church, of worship, and, and really of, of what you might want to call Bible, uh, coffee cup or t-shirt verses filled with just richness about the essence of the Christian life and knowing Christ. But today we return to Moses and the Israelites who have just come through the Red Sea. So we're going through Exodus, and at this point we are post-Red Sea post-Red Sea crossing with Moses and the Israelites. Over the last several weeks in Exodus, we've been looking at the events surrounding the parting of the Red Sea, this most famous of biblical stories. Uh, one, even if you haven't been in church for uh, long or you're just even visiting with us today, you're not a believer, you don't know anything about the Bible, this may be one of those few stories that you have heard is how God parted the sea. In chapter 14 of Exodus... We get a description of what happened. Yahweh miraculously and gloriously made a path through the sea for his people. So the incredible, uh, and what I, I talked about this a little when we were going through that, is that we tend to see this water going up into these two pillars, these two walls, one on the right, one on the left. And the word there, I'll remind you, is the same word used for city wall. So these are, these are massive heaps of water that have been piled up so that the people can cross through. The most amazing thing about the event of the parting of the sea is not the fact that the water parted and there were these walls, but the fact that God made a path for his people. 
So we are to understand the Lord's gracious and loving path-making power for his people. And then, that wasn't the end of the story, then Yahweh brought the sea back down on the enemies of his people. Israel saved, Egypt defeated, God glorified. And of course, that was the point of the whole thing, was the glory of God, the glory of God at the sea. God showing his greatness, God showing his power, showing himself to be the great rescuer and the great judge. (coughs) Well, if chapter 14 gives us the narrative of those events, chapter 15 puts it in poetic form in the song of the sea. And so we get the the narrative of what happened, and then we get the poetic reworking of what happened as we find an account of what God did in the mouths of his people as they praise him. God enthroned in the praises of his people. And so we see them reflecting on his greatness and his love, praising him as they recount what he had done at the Red Sea. Exalting God, praising him for his victory and salvation, declaring his holiness and his majesty, and celebrating his very personal care for his people. God saved us from the Egyptians. God will put terror in the hearts of other potential enemies. And God will lead us forward into the promised land. He hasn't just brought us through this great trial, but he's going to continue to carry us. He's going to carry us all the way into the land of promise, into his presence, into his holy abode, well, where we will be his worshipers. Such joy, such confidence, such exaltation and exultation. But that's only the first part of chapter 15. That's only the beginning. So today we come to the end of chapter 15 to verses 22 to 27. And it doesn't take us long to see that very quickly the picture has changed as we come to verses 22 to 27. Now we move from triumph to trial. From the mountain peak of praise down to the valley of protest. We move now from glorying to grumbling. In these verses, God leads his people into an early test. And by the way, as we see this transition, we're not meant to understand uh, the difference between uh, success and failure. We're not meant to understand, okay, things were going really well and now things are going really poorly. What we're meant to understand is that even in the midst of the test that God brings his people through, we are still walking in God's plan. We're still walking according to God's purposes. God is still triumphant as they are in the valley. God is still triumphant as they are undergoing this early test. One commentator puts it this way, a commentator named Douglas Stewart. He says, after the first great victory came the first great test. So the first part of chapter 15, they praise God for the victory. And then now we immediately thereafter get this early test. And I think this is a point for us just to reflect in general. Isn't it the case 
And I know that you've seen this in your life, that praise, joy, trust, obedience, all of these things come easily to us when we are on the mountain, right? Victim, uh, enemies have just been vanquished. We have just experienced God's fulfilling rescue. We have just experienced whatever blessing it is, fill in the blank, whatever experiential satisfaction that God has graced us with, and we're on the mountain, and it is just so easy, it is so fluid and so free to praise God, to celebrate Him, to rejoice in Him, to walk in His ways. But what happens down in the valley? <clears throat> what happens when we come off of that high point and we find ourselves in this incredibly low point? This is where the substance of our praise and of our faith is tested. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would recognize that oftentimes our praise is inch deep. Our praise of God, our joy in God, our trust in God, our love for God is really just as thin as the satisfying circumstances he's brought us into. That's it. We're like anyone else who's happy when things are going nice, when things feel comfortable. Of course, we are singing, dancing, playing the tambourine, as it were, filled with all delight. But then we go to the valley, and that's where the reality and the depth and the strength of faith, of Christian faith, of God-given faith, of Holy Spirit-wrought faith, shows itself to be true. That's where the substance and the strength and every time, too, the weakness of our faith is revealed. So the title for the sermon this morning is An Early Test. So if you would go ahead and stand with me <coughs> as we read God's Word together. An Early Test. Exodus 15. Verses 22 to 27. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes. And give ear to his commandments. And keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you 
that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. You can go ahead and be seated. A short little narrative, but one I think that's packed with truth for us as we consider (coughs) the Christian life, as we consider who our God is and how he works in our lives. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing, and let's ask that God would calibrate our hearts to his truth. Father, we bow before you this morning. We thank you for another opportunity to be together as your people, to sit under your word, to sing your praises, to call out to the Lord our God. Father, we thank you that you are our creator and our redeemer. And we come this morning as your blood-bought people, as people who have been rescued and transferred out of darkness, people who have been forgiven, who have been redeemed, purchased with the blood of your very own Son. Just as we consider the great weight of that in Genesis 22 with Abraham and his son, how infinitesimally smaller, how incomparable it is that Abraham would give his son in comparison to you, the eternal Father, giving your one and only eternally begotten Son to be crucified, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be whipped, to be murdered for us. Father, we bow before you because of your goodness, your love, your mercy. We thank you that you have saved us through Christ. And we ask that our joy in Christ and our love for him and our appreciation of what he did and our hope in what he will bring to us in latter days, that all of this will motivate our lives as we gather this morning, motivate us to pay attention, motivate us to control our thoughts and our bodies, and motivate us, Lord, to leave here doing your word and not just having attended another service, having listened to another sermon, having read another set of biblical words. Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us through this service, that we would walk in your ways in our own hearts as we sit here today and then as we progress through the rest of the day and into the week. We love you, Father. Thank you (coughs) for loving us first and giving us your only son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. As we try to take in this passage this morning, we can break it, I think, into two parts. So here they are. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. Break it into two parts. First, we have the trial of thirst, uh, verses 22 up through the first part of verse 25, and then the teaching of two ways, uh, the latter part of verse 25 up through verse 27. So the trial of thirst. And the teaching of two ways. So let's look first at the trial itself. The circumstances that we get at the very beginning. The trial of thirst. So look at verses 22 to 25. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah... They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? 
And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, (coughs) and the water became sweet. Here we have a transition and a problem. The Israelites can't stay in camp by the sea forever. And we see that. They've, They've come through the sea. God has brought the waters of the sea down on their enemies. He, he has even, in the, the dynamics of all of that, he's even uh, allowed it to where the bodies of the Egyptian soldiers, in the might of their armor, have come up onto the shore so that the Israelites get a visual, a very clear visual of the defeat of their enemies. The Lord has vanquished them. This is a, this is a comfortable place to be. They're by the sea, the place of victory, the place of salvation. They see their enemy no more. And they have just come out of this incredible, all-encompassing praise. This comprehensive praise. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we get Moses and all the sons of Israel. And then we get the women swept up into this as Miriam leads them in praise. This is the whole people praising God. God. This is an incredible moment of festivity. But the Israelites can't stay encamped there forever. It is time for them to get moving. They can't merely sit and soak in their victories. They have to get on to the next thing. They have to keep moving. They have to keep moving forward according to God's will. And I think that's the case for us. In all of the situations that God brings us through in life, there will will be moments where it is just so incredibly delightful that we just want to stay. We just want to stay there. We want to camp there. We want to be there forever. But that's not how life works. God continues to move his people On their pilgrim's progress to that great city. And so they must get moving. So Moses has to make the people set out. They have to leave the Red Sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. I think we're meant to understand there that there's a a kind of forcefulness here. We've got to get going. We, We have to continue forward. They have to leave the Red Sea. They have to keep the events of the Red Sea firmly in mind while at the same time not staying in that place forever. And think about that for us. We all have the temptation to stay or go back. How many of us have done that? And even as you think about going into a new year, how many of us do that in the Christian life? We think, oh, if only things were like they were in college. You know, Back when I was in college and so-and-so was in my life and this was going on. And man, I was just really growing in the Lord there. It was such a wonderful time. I wish I could go back there. You're not there anymore. That's then. This is now. If God wanted you to be there, you'd still be there. And that's the way life is. God moves us on. And we want to go back to that place or that set of circumstances or that experience. Or we simply want to stay where we are right now. So you out there this morning living in just a state of utter delight. 
<laughs> know this. You're not going to stay right here. You're just going to keep on moving forward. And God's going to move you into all kinds of states and situations and conditions for his glory according to his plan. So buckle up. Enjoy it while it's here. But buckle up. Because you can't stay here. That's not what God calls us to do. And yet he does call us to move forward with remembrance. And this is important. We can't stay in that moment, in that situation, but we carry it with us in our own hearts and minds as we remember the work of God and we trust in him as we go into all kinds of new situations, new circumstances, some much drier, some much more lonely, some much heavier, more painful. And yet, the glories of the past are with us. In our own minds. So off they go into the wilderness. And that leads us to the problem. The people start to run out of water. And I say that as I drink a sip of water, recognizing how important water is to us. Uh, And we all recognize that here. Before we want to just blast the Israelites, oh, look at those people out there. Uh, None of us. Uh, right now, has any idea what it is like, really, to, to be exceedingly thirsty, uh, almost unto death? I mean, we just, we just drink and drink and drink. You know, we go a few hours, like, I'm kind of thirsty. I, I, need to, I need to get some water. We're talking here about a massive movement of people running out of water. <coughs> the most essential thing, aside from air, that we have. The one thing, aside from air, that we need more than anything else. Now, we don't know how much water they have carried with them up to this point. Or what sources of water they have found along the way. But what happens here is surprising to them. They go three days into the wilderness and find no water. You know, maybe a few hours. It's it's okay, we're going to come up on something here soon. No, then a few hours turns into an entire day. And then, you know, surely on the next day, we're going to find some water. And then that whole day goes by. And then they're into the third day. They go three days into the wilderness and they find no water. No water for them. No water for their children. Who started complaining, I'm sure, a long time ago, right? A long time ago. And no water (coughs) for their animals, remember. And we're not just talking about uh, 2 to 2.5 million people. We're also talking about all of these extensive herds. We're talking about all of these animals who also need water. No small concern. No water Water is running out. This wilderness of Shur in Arabia is for them a barren wasteland, a place of thirst. So you can imagine how they must have felt when they realized that just up ahead there was a place with water. I mean, all of the excitement, all of the relief to be without water or to be running out of water and to see up ahead, finally, three days There it is, a place with water. Any efforts to conserve the water they they already had probably got a little lax at this point. You know how that is. You know, when you you think that you're not going to have 
food for a while, you're sort of counting beans or whatever, you know. You're thinking about every little bit, but then you know some, you know, big feast is coming. You're not too concerned, you know. You take bigger bites. You take bigger gulps. Give a little extra water to the goats. You know, that sort of thing. So any efforts to conserve probably become quite lax at this point. And maybe they start finishing up whatever water they have. But then the unthinkable happens. The water they find is undrinkable. It's utterly undrinkable. They, they cannot drink this water. The text here says that it is bitter, probably meaning that it ha- has a high salt content. It's undrinkable. They, they're, they're not going to be able to survive on this water. They can't drink it. It will not provide relief. Three days without water, and now what they find is useless to them. Mara. You think of Naomi, and she's coming out. Her life is bitter. Mara, a bitter place with bitter water. They name the place after this disgusting, undrinkable water. Bitter. So what do the Israelites do? Cry out to the Lord for help? Consider his great power in saving them and ask him for provision? Or do they call out to him saying that they know he will take care of them as he has promised? No. They don't do any of that. That's not what happens. Instead, we get this awful word. It's a nasty word. It's it's really like pride. I think pride is just a nasty word because when we see it in our own hearts, it's so disgusting. And when we see it in other people, it's disgusting. We, we don't like pride, and yet we all have it. And we don't like this idea either of grumbling, but we all do it. Grumbling, to murmur or to protest, to complain. That's the word we tend to use. We complain. We complain. As we've done this week, probably many of us this very morning, maybe some of us right now just complaining about something in our own minds. Complaining. And the Israelites don't even direct their complaints to the Lord himself. They don't even direct their concerns, their laments, whatever word we want to give to it, They don't direct it to the Lord himself as we read in various places in the Psalms. And there's space. There's space for this sort of thing in God's word. We see it throughout the Psalms. For us to bring our laments and our concerns and the heavinesses of our lives to God in prayer. Psalm 42, 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? (coughs) Psalm 44, verses 23 to 26. Listen to these words. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast 
love. That's a heavy heart, but that is a heart filled with faith. A heart filled with faith in God as Redeemer. A heart filled with faith in God as the one who exercises and who has steadfast love. But we do not see that here. These grumblings are not even directed to the Lord. And I think this is a picture of us. As we think about our own lives, we see the Israelites here. And and we're reminded in Hebrews and 1 Corinthians 10 not to be those who complain, not to be those who grumble. The danger of complaining. And I think grumbling and complaining is much like an acid. It's something that just melts away our souls. The more we do it, the more we will go on to do it. And the more it will become a pattern of our lives. So that we actually become grumbly by nature. We become people who are discontent, not joyful, who are dissatisfied with life, who think that God owes us far more than we have, and yet we realize we're not in hell. Let me tell you something this morning. If you're not in hell, God has given you far more than you deserve. Far more than we deserve. We deserve hell. God has woken us up another day. And for those of us who are in Christ, we know that hell is gone for us. We have Christ. No condemnation anymore. Far more than we deserve. But we see how we forget. We grumble. And we fail to pray. Think about that. That even in our grumbling, just think about the audacity that we go through difficulties in life and we grumble about it. We're discontent about it. And we don't even think to talk to God about it. There's no faith even in it. You know, it's one thing like the psalmist to feel the weight and the heaviness of life and to cry out to God with our whys and to cry out to God with our, our great discontent. But it's another thing to just and grumble about our circumstances and not even pray. Not even say, oh God, this is who you are. Oh God, this is what you have done. Oh God, this is who you are to me. Oh God, please help me. Please come to me. We forget. Where's the exaltation of the first part of chapter 15? Where's the lofty speech? Oh, we are good with our words. Good with our words in prayer. Especially in front of other people. Where's the lofty speech now? Extolling God's greatness. Where's the references to God being my strength and my salvation and my song? Absent. Absent. A picture of us, we must confess, seek the Lord's grace, and repent from these deeds. It's not enough to just say, oh, woe is me. It's not enough to just say, I do that. It's enough to say, no more. No more. And what, what better day than today? As we, as we, Because we're just leaning into the grumbling. It's going to get worse as we go into Exodus. It's just going to get worse. It's just the beginning. This is really just a tiny little preview. It's not even the focus and emphasis of this passage, really. What better time 
to repent of this great sin. Yes, great sin of grumbling and complaining then today. To put that before Christ is to say, Lord, I turn from this evil. I turn from this sin. I wash my hands of this sin. And I will pray to you with gratitude. I will seek you in the most difficult moments of my life. I will not grumble. Instead of calling upon the name of the Lord, they turn and begin lobbing their complaints at Moses. They just start throwing stuff at him again. (laughs) No prayer to the Lord, just complaints to a mere man. What has Moses ever done for them anyway? It's the Lord. And as Moses will go on to say later, your complaints are not against me. They are against God. They're not against me and Aaron. They are against God. So they say to Moses, what are we going to drink, Moses? Ugh, what have you done? Brought us out here? No water? We're thirsting to death? What are we going to do? So what happens? Well, Moses does what they should have done. He turns to the Lord on their behalf. (coughs) He prays. He cries out to the Lord. And it's amazing. It's really remarkable here how quickly the narrative progresses at this point. And we're meant to take note of that. In subsequent passages, we're going to get a little more dwelling on the grumbling and the complaining. The sin of it is going to be highlighted, the wickedness of it. But here, the narrative just progresses really quickly. They complain and Moses prays. God provides a remedy. And through that, he gives them drinkable water. And what are we meant to take from the speed of this narrative? I think we're meant to see here God's great patience and grace. How many times have we discovered that in the moment of our own sinfulness? Which is always, but in the moment of a a sin God has brought clearly to our minds. Or in a moment of our own complaining. And God brings us through graciously and patiently. Like a tender father with a child. Bringing us through graciously. Here we see God's patience. We see the same God who dealt in the same way with Moses as he gave all those objections to God at the burning bush. You remember when God calls him and says, this is what I want you to do? And Moses, he's coming up with every reason he can for God to say, okay, I'll send somebody else. He doesn't want to go. God is patient with him. God is gracious to him. And the same is true here. And it is because, as we read earlier from Psalm 103, we are dust. God is mindful of our weakness. Christ sympathizes with us in our weakness. That's why we can go to Christ and we can say, Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me for that. And then we turn. We don't just keep going back to him for the same stuff. We don't just keep going back to him. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Oh, Lord, forgive me. That's not repentance. That's false That's just a way to appease our consciences in the moment so we feel better in life. Going to Christ as our sympathizing high priest is always laced, just as it was in the Gospels, with go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And that really was the message here. Go and grumble no more. And then every time thereafter, and of course, We will see that the Lord will bring judgment on his people for their grumbling. The Lord shows Moses part of a tree. And he tells him to throw it into the water. Moses obeys. And God uses this natural symbol to miraculously turn the water from bitter to sweet. And so, just as with the plagues, 
scholars and others debate, okay, what kind of bush was this? Was it, the, the Hebrew word is tree. What, what size? Was this like a whole tree or a log of a tree? Or was this some sort of little bush? Or what, what kind of thing? And then what sort of healing properties were in this tree that made the water and all of that stuff? I mean, we don't know. We don't know. God could have used some sort of natural mechanism but the, the, the scale of this is miraculous. What, whatever it is that this log or this part of a tree or tree did, what we recognize here is that this is a miracle. That God turns the water from bitter to sweet. Once again, the Lord has provided for his people. He has proven faithful. And let me say this to all of us. God will prove himself faithful in every single trial we face. Think about that for a moment. It's easy for us to say, you know, God will prove himself faithful in a lot of the trials we face or some of the trials we face. If we define faithfulness by what makes us feel good in the end, then we might be tempted to say that. But if God's faithfulness is his good for us, perfectly conceived and perfectly borne out, then we can say that God will be faithful to us in every trial, every trial single difficulty we face. In his wisdom, he will prove faithful. How liberating that is to live life. That no matter what we face, no matter how horrendous it might be, no matter how deeply painful internally or externally it may be, no matter how devastating and crushing it may be, God will prove faithful. But we're just free to live for his glory until we fall over. Free to live for him, trusting in his character. So we see the trial of thirst, and now we come to the teaching <coughs> of two ways. The second part, as the passage closes, the teaching of two ways. Verses 25b, the second part, down to verse 27. Look with me there. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am Yahweh, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. <coughs> Here we get an explanation of what is happening. This little passage, this little narrative, here it tells us what it's all about. God is testing his people. This, this is a test. This goes back to Father Abraham, back in Genesis 22.1, where it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then we know how the story proceeds. In Genesis 22, he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, your only son whom you love. I want you to take him and sacrifice him on a mountain. I'll show you. That was the great test. Interestingly, prior to Genesis 22, we see that God has nicely tucked Abraham in to a prosperous, happy, delightful 
comfortable, stable existence. Abraham is living in peace and prosperity in the land with his precious son of promise right there next to him. This is, this is the peak right here. Abraham has reached the peak. If there is a mountain peak, trust me, for Abraham, this was it. This was it. And it is in that context that God then tests him. It is there that God meets him. Not with further pushing up. Not with a promise that it's always going to be this way. But instead with a great arduous test. And that is exactly what we see here. At their highest point of success and satisfaction, they are tested. That's why I say to you this morning, if you're in that point, here it come. Be ready. Be mindful. Don't just get nice and cushy in your seat and think that this is just the way it's going to ride out from here on after. At their highest point, they are tested right after this great victory of the sea and the final defeat of their oppressors. What will we, as we think about it this morning for us as believers, will we cling to him, trust him, treasure him, follow him? This is always what the test is about. This is what God is doing. Are we going to cling to God or something else? Are we going to trust in God or ourselves or someone or something else? Are we going to treasure God are we going to be satisfied in the Lord or in those other things? Are we going to follow him or the imaginations of our own heart? Are we going to follow our heart? Rubbish. Or are we going to follow the Lord? That's what tests are always about As Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says, it humbles us and reveals what is in our hearts. And isn't it nasty sometimes what we see when God tests us? Isn't it disgusting what we see in our hearts? It reveals God graciously shows us what's there. It reveals whether or not we will obey the Lord in his grace. And this early test, more than anything else, serves as an opportunity. It's a teaching moment. That's really what this is about. This test, the Israelites don't do so well. This test, though, really becomes an opportunity. It becomes a teaching moment. The Lord uses it to begin directing his people to the law that they will receive at Sinai. You could consider this like a little mini law. God has given them the law in a nutshell. He's preparing them for Sinai in the midst of this test. They haven't come to Mount Sinai yet. But the Lord is giving them a preview. What are the people to do? Instead of grumbling, instead of constantly wanting to go back to Egypt, instead of pining after other things besides the Lord, what are the people to do? Verse 26 sums it up. If you will, listen, just let the words fall on our hearts slowly. If you will diligently listen. There's no way 
if you're not reading your Bible, that you're diligently listening to the voice of the Lord. It's just not happening. It's just not happening, right? To diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes. Remember the judges? They did what was right in their own eyes. Do what is right in his eyes. How do we know what's right in his eyes? We read his word and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Remember Jesus' words? You don't just hear Jesus' words, but you hear his words and you go and do them. You can actually hear Jesus' words and you get wrecked by the storm. Like Jesus says in Matthew 7, your house is built on sand. You can be a hearer all day long. You just keep on coming to church, keep on listening to podcasts, keep on listening to the Bible or reading the Bible. There's just nothing happening. It's just all words bouncing around in the head. Where's the keeping? Where's the doing that results from the hearing? That's what the Lord is about. Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. In other words, if they will hear and do, then God will preserve them. Bitterness will turn to sweet for them. And here, the changing of the water stands in contrast to the first plague. Do you notice that? God's first great encounter with the Egyptians results in something that was sweet being transformed into something bitter. And even more, water being transformed into blood. But with the Egyptians, with the Egyptians, it was turned downward. With the Israelites here, it is turned from bitter to sweet. If they listen and walk in the Lord's ways, then instead of water to blood, instead of plague, they will get bitter to sweet. They will get healing. There are two ways to live. And there have always been, from the time of Cain and Abel, only two ways to live. Many, many people think that they've got their own little way, but they're just on that second way. Because there are only two. That of disease and destruction or that of life. The way of the healer. The way of covenant relationship with God. It's one or the other. Of course, <coughs> we read elsewhere <clears throat> that if they don't obey the Lord then God will bring on them the diseases of the Egyptians. So let me just read you the contrast. God says, I am your healer. I, if you walk in my ways, if you diligently listen to my voice, you fill your heads and your hearts with my word and you go out and you do it and you cling to me as your God, then this is what I'll do. But if you don't, then this is what I'll do. Deuteronomy 28, 21. The Lord will make the pestilence Stick to you. Stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And then verse 27. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. So here the Lord draws this 
great contrast. And we know that from the end of Deuteronomy, after the law is given, and of course, as the law is being explicated, that there are two ways. There is the way of following God, which is ultimately blessing, and the way of disobeying God, which is ultimately cursed. God has just provided ample illustration of this teaching with the transformation of the water. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 27. Then they came to Elam, or Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. This is, this is a really short narrative, and it, it just goes, it has a lot of movement to it. Look at where it starts with three days of thirst and then finding water only to be greatly disappointed. I mean, can't, we can't even fathom the amount of disappointment that they would have experienced when they came to that undrinkable water. And then now we get to the end of this, and we see that God doesn't just give them a drink of transformed water and set them on their way. You better gather up all the transformed water at Mara that you can because it's just going to be all wilderness from here on out. That's not what happens. He leads them to an oasis. This is abundance. And mind you, he leads them there after they failed the test. And they didn't do so well on that test. They did not call out to the Lord. They did not continue their praises from the first part of chapter 15. And yet, even though they fail the test, even though they perform terribly, God leads them to an oasis. This is incredible grace. And by the way, this is a call for us this morning to take heart. Regardless of what we did yesterday or this morning or what we've been doing this past week, to come to the Lord and to turn from our sin and to know that God is gracious and kind to lead us in the oases of life. He's, he's kind and gracious to lead us forward to a better place, to a greener place, to a well-watered place. If you're a Christian, there is no dominion for you anymore for sin. You're not stuck. Nobody in here who is a Christian is stuck. That's a lie from Satan. You're not stuck. No matter what you've done, you're not stuck. You're not trapped. You're not under the thumb of Satan. Christ died for you. He rose for you. He is seated high above all principalities and powers for you. He has given his spirit for you. He intercedes for you. He is coming back for you. All that you need for grace and godliness, all that you need is freely given. So why live this morning like a self-pitying victim? You know why we do that? Because we like our sin. We just wallow in self-pity because we're the victim of our sin. No! Turn from sin. Repent of sin. Don't wallow in sin or see yourself as a woe is me, oh my, victim of sin. Come to God who gives grace, but come with a heart ready to go the other way. What's amazing here, even as you think about these numbers, 
is that God doesn't just bring them to an oasis. Gives them that little provision at Mara, then he gives them this oasis. But it says here that there were 12 springs of water. That's a spring for every tribe. There are 12 tribes. There could have been 13 or 14. There could have been 9 or 10 or 11. They're not. There's 12 springs. And I read commentators who say, I don't think there's anything relevant about these numbers. That's, that's absurd. That's just absurd. There are 12 springs and there are 12 tribes of the Israelites. The Lord is communicating something to them. He is communicating covenant-keeping love. There's more communicated here than just here's some water for you. And not only that, but there are 70 palm trees. And of course, the ancient rabbis made various things of this with the 70 elders and so forth. I tend to go back to Exodus 1-5 with this number 70. I think it reminds them of the 70 who entered Egypt with Jacob. At the very beginning of Exodus, Exodus 1, we see that 70 persons in all. The Israelites are being brought back to their beginnings. Those 12 sons through whom God made the nation. Those 70 descendants who came into Egypt through whom God made the nations. The same God who watered that 70 to become a multitude of people will water them to become his people, his nation, whom he will care for whom he will shepherd, just as Jacob said, the Lord God has shepherded me all the days of my life. He will do the same for his sons, the sons of Israel. As we finish this passage this morning, I want you to consider this big idea. Those who hear and obey the Lord by trusting in his Christ... (coughs) First and foremost, and all-encompassing, the way we obey the Lord is by trusting in his Christ. God has presented Christ to us, and we bow the knee to Christ as king. We confess Jesus is Lord. Paul calls this the obedience of faith. We obey the Lord by trusting in his Christ and those who do so most surely find rest, life, and peace. God will be their healer, and the end result of all of their existence will be what we find in Revelation 21. As we read there in verse 4, he will wipe away every, every, every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. That's God being our healer. That's God providing all that we need forever and ever and ever and ever. For the former things... Have passed away. And then in verse 6, we read the Lord saying this To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Christ paid 
for our sins on the cross and we will receive eternally God's perfect joy and bliss and peace and rest nourished forever. That is as sure for us as the birth of Isaac was for Abraham. Eternal refreshment and blessing is what the Lord holds out for us. But it will not come through law keeping. Now maybe there's someone in here this morning who hears these verses, who reads these verses and says, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And, and maybe you're a cultural Christian. Uh, maybe you're a particularly disciplined kind of person. Maybe you pride yourself on your high morality or whatever. Maybe mom and dad were Christians and, and, and you came in to the church sort of that way, but you've just never been saved. You're, you're just not saved. You're not a Christian. You're not a believer. Your heart's never been changed. You've never trusted Christ. You don't know God. Maybe that is you. Understand this. This rest, this freedom from thirst will not come through law-keeping. It will not come through your efforts, but only through trusting in the one who perfectly kept the law on our behalf, who died in our place for our sin, and who then, by his Spirit, fills us so that we might love God from the heart. This is what we see so clearly in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. which is where we started this morning in our call to worship. And it is also where we will end. Romans 8, verses 3 to 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, here's the result and the purpose, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, all that we just read in Exodus 15, all that diligently hearing and that giving ear to and that keeping and doing all that we just read, which encapsulates the law, which will be given later, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No one in this room is going to get to heaven by law-keeping. No one in this room is going to get to heaven, is going to get to God because you check all of the boxes, because none of us does. Christ did, and he died our death. He paid our penalty, and he rose our new life. And in him, we are free from our sin and have all that Revelation 21 has to say to look forward to. God is and will forever be our healer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for bringing us comfort and bringing us challenge showing us your glory, your grace. Lord, we thank you for identifying us with your people there in the Old Testament in the Exodus. And Lord, thank you for showing us the propensities of our own heart 
and the remedies that lie before us. God, we pray that we would be faithful to you as we, by the Spirit, trusting in Christ alone, live out this life of law-fulfilling that has been purchased for us by our Savior. We pray for your grace this week until we meet again. And we thank you for this time of celebrating the Lord's Supper as we remember what Christ did, as we remember the truth of Romans 8, 3 to 4, when you gave up your own son. We celebrate this now so visually, so tangibly in the Lord's Supper. Would you bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.